This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for being with us. Fresh off an hour-long interview with the President of the United States on that great show you love, Fox and Friends. Uh, I hope you are listening to that. We'll have some highlights here. John Roberts, the best in the business, Fox News Chief White House Correspondent. He's coming to us from uh, the White House. With his lot of action today, you know, Sally Yates is going to be on Capitol Hill in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, headed by Lindsey Graham. And we're going to find out what she knew about the investigation into Donald Trump candidate, soon to be president, and Michael Flynn, what she knew, and how come she was surprised that President Obama knew about it. I cannot, she's very astute, so I cannot wait to see what happens. There's going to be some fireworks, and man, are the Republicans ready? Uh, and meanwhile, we'll take your calls as well. If you ever missed the show, BrianKillMeShow.com, uh, you can download all three hours for free on iTunes. You could do it for all free on iHeart. And as I know, you can go to the name of the show. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So I'd remind the Republican leader that if this bill is going to pass with all Democrats in the House and a majority of Democrats in the Senate, it's got to be something that Democrats like and support. Oh, that's pretty basic. Thanks, Senator Schumer. Coronavirus rescue package promised to be delivered by next by the end of the week. Will you, we will give you a preview if that's even possible, along with an update on the vicious virus itself. Number two. Will the vice president debate Donald Trump this fall? Oh, yes, he will. I think they've already um, I think it's three debates that they um, decided on. So, yeah, they'll be I there. too. Uh, there you go. 2020, the battle to get Americans to vote in person intensifies as Biden announces a big buy immigration vision and makes m- makes a commitment to debate, as you just heard his wife did anyway. At least that's what Jill is saying. Also, Republicans get a break as the right candidate wins the Senate primary in Kansas, enabling them perhaps to keep that seat of, of theirs in the Senate. Number one. Antifa is a horrible group. It's a far left group. And they used to try and blame the right on all this stuff. And now, finally, at least they're not doing that so much anymore. I don't see very much of that at all. Almost never. Antifa is a far left group of radical anarchists. Law, order and denial. Dems cannot get themselves to even admit Antifa exists, let alone come up with a way to fight it and defund it. Why is that? I don't get it. I thought this and we just talked to the president of the United States about that. That was a clip from it. You know, I thought uh, when it comes to this Antifa group that you might have Democrats and Republicans on the same page like they were last week with the head of Facebook, uh, Google um, and uh, Apple. 
they all came together and basically people are really concerned about the size of their organizations and their impact on the economy and uh, our sanctity of information and everything like that. You saw Democrats and Republicans really on the same page. I cannot believe that the highlights of I've seen and the transcripts that I've read, I did not see a Democrat come up and say, man, uh, we were so we thought we had racial unrest. And all of a sudden this group comes up with pallets of bricks Trunkfuls of bats, sacks of frozen water, coordination, communication on all these riots from Portland to Seattle to Minneapolis to uh, to Albuquerque to Philadelphia and New York. No, that wasn't the case at all. Here, Ted Cruz chaired this panel and he was aghast. He was, listen, I can't even get into this debate. You keep changing the tune. Here's Ted Cruz. Cut for denying. Fair protection of law enforcement is a civil rights violation. Those rioters aren't concerned about racial justice. Indeed, they're willing to make a mockery of the peaceful protest to advance their violent objectives. More and more, we're seeing signs that a significant portion of this violence, of this rioting, is is not random. It's not spontaneous. Rather, it is coordinated and inspired by leftist anarchist groups, groups like Antifa. We're seeing too many local officials, mayors and governors, who've made a cynical decision that it's in their partisan interest to turn a blind eye to this violence. So I can't believe it. I mean, we have video of pallets of bricks. Who, in a fit of anger, has uh, has pallets of bricks dropped off by a truck where all of a sudden a group of people appear in a corner and they all start grabbing bricks and throwing it through windows? And bats and hitting cops. Here's Dick Durbin. This is what I'm talking about. Cut six. Instead of focusing on the real and significant violent threat of domestic terrorism motivated by white supremacy and far right-wing extremism, terrorists who have killed Americans, the Trump administration has repeatedly tried to vilify protesters and conflate social justice movements with anti-government extremism. Is this this guy a clown or what? I mean, Dick Durbin, are you serious? Uh, after all these years, do you have any interest in getting to the bottom of an anarchist organization that's just anti-American? They're not trying to make America better. They're not angry, angry about racial injustice over decades and a lack of progress, which, which we all can work on. Here's the president of the United States after he saw what we saw and listened. This was 20 minutes ago. Antifa is a horrible group. It's a far left group. And they used to try and blame the right on all this stuff. And now, finally, at least they're not doing that so much anymore. I don't see very much of that at all. Almost never. Antifa is a far left group of radical anarchists. And agitators is a nice word, but they're really anarchists. Who finances the them? Democrats know, the Democrats know they exist. You have Democrats funding them. They say Soros and they say other people. Who knows? But they're funded. You see them standing there with uh, weapons that are expensive, that, uh, that, that uh, with signs that were made. I mean, literally, they have signs. Some of their little marches, they have signs that were made in a high-class printing shop. I like the signs that are made in a basement. They mean a lot more. But that Antifa is very well known by the Democrats. And when they say, gee, we don't know who they are, who could they be? Uh, They are a bad group. Yeah. And that was president. And they are a bad group. I can't believe we have to uh, disagree on that. I I can't believe there might be people out there who think that uh, maybe the president or Homeland Security or 
are, are making things up about a threat. This should be about racial justice. This should be about making progress from the 60s to today. We were at a point in this country, and we've all seen the video, of white bathrooms and white water fountains. And we had a, I remember Jim Brown telling me as a Syracuse running back when he used to travel down south, they used to tell the black players you can stay in this hotel and the white players stay in that hotel. I can't believe that happened in America. We made tremendous progress. we got to make more. We all agree on that. But it's not going to be through Antifa. They don't care about racial justice. And before I move on and turn the page, Condoleezza Rice brought it back down to what I think could make progress in America instead of dividing America. She talked about it. She's a conservative, grew up in the South, saw the cross burning, saw the, uh, saw the KKK, came out conservative still. Cut eight. I would like to get to the place that when you see somebody who is black, you don't have preconceived notions of what they're capable of, who they are, by the way, what they think which is, I think, a problem of the left. And uh, she went on. And that's that's what I was hoping to be talking about. John Robertson, 10 minutes. So I, I do want to talk about 2020. Uh, Joe Biden announced a $280 million general election paid media strategy. Uh, it's probably the biggest ever. The campaign says it's the largest presidential campaign advertising uh, advertising in history. $220 million for fall advertising on TV. $60 million for streaming and digital advertising. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Trump's campaign continues to stream and are cutting edge when it comes to social media. However, when it comes to knocking on doors, they are killing it. Uh, They are still doing that, still talking to people, still on the ground, which, by the way, can be dangerous in uh, in this day and age. Here's Ronna McDaniel on their strategy and their ground game. Cut 20. This has been an initiative of the RNC and the Trump campaign. This is why we've had staff on the ground so early, because we knew we needed to increase our voter registration numbers. We're starting to see these numbers where we're outpacing the Democrats. This makes a huge difference heading into an election day. We have 1,500 staff on the ground. And I'll tell you what. Biden doesn't. And we're seeing this across the country. He has key states where he hasn't even put in a state director. And I think this is part of the reason why states like Nevada just called an emergency session to change their election law because they knew we were mm. out organizing them in their state. And so it's really unfortunate to see them uh, in the middle of the night change the rules of the game right. in the fourth quarter with the players on the field. Yeah, that's, uh, I love the sports analogy. Uh, so Ronna McDaniel saying they're still knocking on doors the blue-collar way, and they've really uh, out-registered Democrats. I don't ever remember that in my life. Here's the question. Can Joe Biden win with, with, a great, with a lot of money, a lot of advertising, a lot of organization, but without him? Does he at one point have to do something? President Trump just sat down with Jonathan Swan, guest in the next hour on Fox and Friends. He did a half hour with or an hour with Chris Wallace. He just did an hour with us. He was on with Lou Dobbs yesterday. Boom. You're not going to give me a rally. Just give me the microphone. What's Joe Biden doing? Having 20 second Zoom calls. And I'm not even exaggerating. That's it. So this is the problem. Now, this is why I agree with the president. I got a huge problem with mail-in voting, but I asked him specifically, and I should have requested this sound. Let's president. You don't like mail-in voting. I don't either. If I request it, I might be a senior. I have an underlying condition. I can't get around. Absentee ballot. Whatever the situation is. In the wrong state. I've changed states. I'm registered in another. Order it. 
But what I have a problem with personally as an American is when you flood an entire state with ballots because you have no idea. Are these people alive, dead? Um, People I know are getting ballots. They passed away a year and a half ago. So they're still getting ballots and some got $1,200 stimulus checks. So why would I think that my mail-in ballot is as safe as walking to a a postal to a voting location? So I asked the president. Are you going to provide the funding and the additional locations to make sure the crowds aren't great and the lines aren't long in November? And he thinks he he thinks he has it. We have that one. Oh, okay. What does the administration plan on doing to make it easier? More poll sites, clean teams, making demanding more uh, more places in in more areas, providing the financing to do that. So if we admit there's a pandemic and a hurdle, what do you plan on doing at it if mail in voting makes you unsettled? Brian, all of those things and more, but all of those things. And remember, November 3rd is a long way. That's a long way. The numbers are coming down very rapidly in Florida. They're coming down in California. They're coming down in Texas. They're coming down. Those three places shot up, and those numbers are coming down. So by the time we get there, we'll probably be in very good shape. But all of those things, cleanliness, they'll wear the mask. They'll do whatever they have to do, but they want to vote. With Las Vegas, excuse me, Las Vegas, what Nevada just did is gave the whole state ballots and the governor did it by himself. So the president's team, the, the administration's suing. You gotta be kidding. What are you trying to do? Can we all agree to have a fair election? I, we, I mean, I, we have to have a alternative. But mail-in ballots aren't the ticket. It's too much pressure on a postal system that had trouble producing just with absentee uh, ballots. I don't think they can do it. For entire state after state. It's going to be November 3rd. We're not going to have a winner. It's going to further divide the country. one 408 7669 I'll come back, take some calls, get your feedback, and read some of your emails. Then we go to John Roberts on how it's resonating that the President of the United States might be giving his acceptance speech for the Republican nomination at the White House on the South Lawn. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. 
In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Joe Biden's whatever they tell him to be. And I think it's good that a wife is, I would expect a wife to say that. That's the appropriate thing to say. But Joe is being taken so far left. Look at the manifesto that he and Bernie agreed to. That's further left than Bernie ever was. No borders. Uh, you know, think of it. But the fact is that Joe has has agreed already. So how can they say he's a moderate? He's agreed to all these things. But Joe's is is totally involved with every one of those horrible things. Uh, that is Joe Biden. And that is uh, he's talking about Joe Biden, the president's opponent in the November 3rd election. And the president's talking about the Jill Biden said he was very nice and deferential that my husband's a moderate. He's if he might be a moderate, but it has nothing to do with him. He called himself potentially. He put a laid out a program to make him the most progressive president in his lifetime or or since FDR. And you had Bernie Sanders and we played this three or four days in a row saying Get Joe Biden elected, and then we'll try to make him more progressive. So when Joe Biden should be forced to name his cabinet, then we'll really see what his philosophies and policies will be, because he's going to have the ultimate hands off the wheel, no question. So one of the questions I had to President Trump is, you know, you say you have a lot of testing, but it's not rapid testing, and the reagents and the swabs are creating a problem and a backlog across the country. Not the actual test, the labs, the reagents, and the swabs. And he, I said, where are the Abbott tests? And Kathy just wrote me on BrianKillMe.com and said, you're wrong, Brian. I live in Fort Myers, and you can get a rapid test easily. I have friends and family who have done this for, reason, for work reasons. My husband had an appointment tomorrow morning because he needs to travel to Connecticut. There's, no, there's so much testing here and so many places doing testing. Uh, don't become fake news. I pay now to watch uh, OAN because Fox is going too far left. No, it's not fake news. It's a legitimate question because I have a lot of people in this area that I know that have to wait 10 days, including a lot of my really good friends that said, forget it. I can't even wait anymore. Then we have other people who go to get tested. I had two people go to get tested. The line was so long, they left but had signed in, and they got a notice in the mail that they tested positive. That's a problem. There's some type of corruption in the system. Dave, listening on the Fox News Radio app in California. Dave. Hey, Brian. You know, I've been watching that uh, the Portland thing for like two weeks. I've been watching it on uh, – they have a live stream, and I got one guy I follow a lot. Uh, Soul Luna is what they call him. But anyway – what happened yesterday was a total disgrace. What happened? The Democrats, they lied through that whole thing. I watched it. The the uh, the feds that were uh, protecting the 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 uh, justice building and stuff, they didn't come out there until after they were tearing the fences down. They were shooting rockets into the damn thing. But once Portland PD got out there. Last night, a night before they cleaned that whole thing out, the, the thing was closing down at 12 o'clock because there was nothing there. They cleaned those people right out of there. 
So I take my hat off to the Portland PD. I take my hat off to the feds and those damn Democrats lying like they do, and I don't know why they get away with it. Yeah, when it comes to a law and order, I thought we all agreed what crime was, what destruction was, and what legitimate protests are. But I think we all see with our own eyes. It's interesting. The president has not had a break, and the world has not had a break with this pandemic. And then civil unrest that took place after, and shutting down the economy as our best defense, all of us worked against the president. But when it comes to law and order, it is so over the top for these Democrats to pretend as if Antifa doesn't exist and violence is because the federal agents, that is just a bridge too far. That them showing up with camouflage was an issue that got people upset when asked about why don't you have names and you're putting people in unmarked cars. Number one, they don't walk around with cop cars. They're coming from other states. Number two, that's a lot of their uniforms, what they do with the border and other places. Number three, the reason they don't have their names They're protesting at every sheriff's house, police commissioner's house, secretary's house, mayor's house. Why would you want to go tell them where you live and put your family in jeopardy for what you do for a living? John Roberts next from Washington. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Absentee is okay because you have to go through a process, Brian. And you go through a process and you make a request and they send it to you and you get it and you fill it out. And it's a process and it's a smaller number. What they're going to do is blanket the state. Anybody that ever walked, frankly, will get one. And, you know, the governor's a clubhouse politician. He's uh, somebody that, frankly... uh, was shocking and shocking what he did, more shocking what he did. Without uh, town halls, without meetings, without the public, they went out and they just approved this ridiculous system. And the post office will never be equipped to handle it. And that's what uh, the president's uh, pretty stunned by. I thought it was pretty much agreed. He's not trying to destroy the post office. They can barely handle what they have now. I don't know if they can handle 100 million ballots. John Roberts is filling in for Bill Hemmerle. week, doing a great job. Fox News chief White House correspondent. And it never stops. John, welcome back. <laughs> it says, says the guy who's the hardest working man in TV who's on often at 6 o'clock in the morning and then again at 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, we're, we're just having fun. At least I have somewhat of a format. I at least know when I'm in and out. With you, it never stops. Plus, you got to well, do this thing true. like follow leads and follow and keep up with sources. So it really, I don't know how you do that. And as a parent, that's got to be tough. Every day it's something new. Every day it's something new, which is, which is great. You know, it keeps it interesting. Yeah, so with the President of the United States, he had that uh, Jonathan Swan, we're going to talk to him next hour, had an interview with Jonathan Swan, but I thought it was very fair, but it made a lot of news there. He was on with us, and was on with Lou Dobbs last night, on with us a half hour ago. One of the things that stood out, John, was he basically is seriously considering having his acceptance speech from the White House. How would that go over? Well, he said that last week, too. He said the Rose Garden might be a great setting for it. Uh, Now he's saying now they're talking about maybe the South Lawn. I think the Rose Garden would be a nice setting, although the South Portico definitely is a a beautiful backdrop. Uh, I think for Republicans, it would go over well because it would set the tone of the presidency and incumbency and uh, perhaps give him you know, a greater uh, bit of momentum from that standpoint. I think the Democrats will go crazy about it because they say it's the people's house. It shouldn't be used for a political backdrop. 
But, you know, almost everything that the president does in some way, shape or form, whether it's in the East Room or whether it's in the Rose Garden or the Oval Office or uh, or the Roosevelt Room, the State Dining Room, the Cross Hall. I mean, it's all political to some degree. So it's not much of a stretch for the president to give a political speech from there. And, and remember, he had that Rose Garden event not long ago in which he talked a, a little bit about policy and then went off on Joe Biden for an hour. Uh, he was criticized for that, but the criticism died down. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, he'll get, a, obviously, a lot of criticism from Democrats, but I don't think he's particularly worried about that. Uh, and I think, you know, if you were to put money on it, I, I think probably the smart money's running on the White House. Let's uh, move on, if we can, and, and talk about what the president hopes for and what Jill Biden committed to, however that, whatever that means, as the, the wife of the nominee. And that's three debates. Here's what the president said about the debates. Cut 10. Well, they're trying to get out. I mean, my people are telling me that they're, they're playing very cute. They're trying to get out. There's no question about that. But, you know, we should have the debates. The one problem I have, the debate's very late. It's at the end of September, and a lot of ballots will already be cast by that time. They want to make the debates as late as possible. And this is a commission that's a very left-leaning commission. I frankly wouldn't have even used it, and I could have done that, except it's been used for years. But this is a Clinton-Obama-type uh, commission, and, you know, they call it it's a beautiful name, but I'm not happy with it. So he's not happy with the rules, the moderators, the locations, but he also doesn't like the dates. He wants it earlier. Not likely to move, though. Well, you know, I, the president's argument on the dates is that there are a number of battleground states, including North Carolina, I believe uh, Wisconsin as well, that are going to be sending out uh, these mail-in ballots in September. So people will be able to cast their ballot probably the second week of September. And then, as the president pointed out, the first debate isn't even until the 29th. So you have uh, probably millions of people who are casting a ballot without seeing, without ever seeing the, the two candidates head-to-head. And the president is really counting on these debates to try to move the needle. And there's a couple of points in a campaign, Brian, where you can try to move the needle. One is the convention speech. And maybe with the president now... Thinking about doing it from the White House, he can recapture some of the grandeur of what they were planning for Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, but then the other opportunity to move the, uh, uh, the needle is during a debate. And the president's been itching to go one-on-one with Joe Biden. But if he doesn't go one-on-one with Joe Biden until millions of votes have been cast, then the effect of those debates will be nullified. And he's very, very concerned about that. I don't think there's any consideration by the Commission on Presidential Debates, though, to move up the the time of the first debate. But when you look at you know the de- debate dates that were set, and now you see what's happening with mail-in voting, you know there may be a case to move one of the debates to early September, the first debate to the early part of September, so that people can get a head-to-head comparison and make their minds up uh, based on that. It's been said over the years that debates really don't matter that much. 1960 was the first presidential debate. Uh, Some people say it may have propelled John Kennedy to the presidency, depending on if you watched it on TV or listened to it on the radio. But I think the president's looking forward to that opportunity to do it, and he thinks that it's probably fairly useless if it happens after millions of people have already started voting. I'll give you an example of where I know it worked. When Mitt Romney beat up on Barack Obama in debate one, they even mocked Obama on SNL. Uh, And Mitt Romney was suddenly in contention. And if he didn't have a relatively poor performance, that didn't last long, did it? (laughs) Because then he had a follow up. There were follow up debates. 
and yeah. uh, President Obama rallied. I remember John Kerry beat up on Bush, 41, 43. Uh, he hadn't debated anybody in three years, and Kerry was coming off a pretty vigorous primary, and he beat him up, and he closed the gap quick. But then it would follow up debates he did better. Well, here's something, here's something funny. Mike Huckabee and I were talking about it the other day. He goes, look at Reagan Mondale in, in 1984, and Reagan's lying about, I paid for this microphone. And I said, so what, he would have won 47 states instead of 49 <laughs> if he hadn't delivered that line? Yeah, that that's true. Uh, I would also say that they <laughs> thought they were worried about his age, though. And in a way, uh, that does at work, because if Joe Biden just is solid, it's a win. Yeah, I mean, they were worried about the agent when he said that, you know, I will not for political yeah. purposes, you know, make age an issue in, in this election. That, that was a great line. But, you know, Reagan was going to win in a landslide anyway. So whether he won 47, 48 or 49 states, it, it, it didn't really matter a whole lot. But I think that Trump really was looking for a, an opportunity here to compare and contrast with uh, uh, with Biden. And, and, you know, he's going to get that opportunity still. But he will have lost a certain percentage of voters by that time. So, you know, you've got to wonder if the system really is fair the way it has been in the past now with this massive push toward mail-in voting. And so, some of it very early. So with about 60,000 positive tests around the country and 1,000 deaths a day, coronavirus is still a huge problem, especially on the economy, uh, the health of our economy and health of the individuals. So the rescue package, we pretty much agree on both sides. We need to have one where uh, the Republicans are at $1 trillion. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and company are at $3.4 trillion. They pledged to have something by the end of the week, some inside baseball stuff. Mark Meadows, uh, according to Senator Schumer, is bored, and he's hurting the process because him and Steve were able to work stuff out in the past, but not with Mark there. What can you tell us, John? Well, I mean, obviously Meadows, because he was a member of the Freedom Caucus when he was in Congress, is protecting the conservative wing of the party, and he knows that this idea of if you re-up the $600 enhanced unemployment insurance uh, for anything more than a short period of time is, is you know, maybe it, it could be something that the president would agree to. It could be something the White House would agree to. But Meadows is, is very much aware that he's, he's going to get the stuffing beaten out of him and the president will as well by the conservative wing of the party if they agree to that. They're just, there, is, there is not much appetite among conservatives for a long-term extension of the $600 unemployment insurance payment. Now, you know, Meadows, I'm sure, is quite aware that while some people may be staying home rather than going back to work because they're getting more money, there are certain people in this country, and, you know, they, a lot of them work in the service industry, too. You know, let's say that you're a bartender at a big hotel somewhere, and you make a certain salary, but then you make a lot of money off of tips. Your unemployment is based on your salary. It's not based on your tips. And, and therefore, that $600 is really helping them make up for what they've been losing in terms of the overage that they would get from tips. And if they lose that $600, they're not going to be able to, to pay the bills. And, and I think that that's a case that you know, he could potentially make to the conservative wing of his party. But that there, is, there is not a lot of – there's no appetite among conservatives – for a you know 14-week or to the end of the year extension to $600. So I think that, you know the Republicans will probably come down maybe somewhere between the $200 uh, extra that's been talked about and, and the $600. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think that's the reason why Meadows is there, to, is to protect the conservative side of the equation. And uh, I'm sure he wants a deal 
But the, the book from the White House is that the Democrats are happy to talk, but they're not happy to make a deal. Okay, fine. Uh, who pays the price politically if there is no deal? And is the president going to fulfill his threat to do something from executive action? You know, the president is definitely looking into a lot of things that he could do from executive action. As to who pays the price, it all depends on what happens with some of these, uh, you know, what, what uh, Chuck Schumer called, uh, what do you call them, scam votes or some, some, some terminology like sham votes. Uh, that Mitch McConnell is going to have in the Senate this week, where they're going to take apart the Heroes Act from the House and force Democrats to vote on things that will, you know, be uncomfortable for them to vote no on. You know, they, they could gain back some traction there. But I, I think whoever wins politically is whoever can deliver eviction protection and enhanced unemployment and a couple of other things uh, for Americans who are still hurting because uh, of the pandemic. Now, on the executive order side of things, there's not a lot the president can do with the exception that, uh, legally speaking, unemployment insurance is what's called mandatory spending as opposed to discretionary spending. You know, it falls mm-hmm. into uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that sort of thing for folks at home who might not know the difference. And so it is possible for the White House to move some of that money around without the um, approval of Congress. And you could get into a situation, too, where, you know, the White House does something that's dubious legally. And, and, and then who's going to challenge them in court, right? If the White House says, okay, we're going to give you eight more weeks of $600 in enhanced unemployment, but we're going to do it in a way that may not pass legal muster in the courts, who's going to sue them over it? Who's going to try to stop those payments? I hear you. Great point. Uh, the other thing, Sally Yates on Capitol Hill today, she's going to be speaking in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee led by Lindsey Graham. Uh, do you think this will generate the type of interest it would have maybe a year ago? uh, Or is this a niche audience as we try to find out what happened in 2016? I mean, I think that, you know, it'll provide a pretty big audience for the cable networks, including ours. It'll be carrying it today. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that it's going to, you know, drive drive the ball forward down the field at all. You know, it may fill in some of the blanks. Uh, But I think that you know, while while Democrats continue to want to investigate the president, and if he wins re-election, it's going to be investigation after investigation after investigation just to try to tie his agenda up in knots. I'm not sure that people are really caring that much about what happened in the Russia investigation anymore. You know, we got we got Flynn who's still fighting uh, his his battle. We got Roger Stone now who's not going to jail. And I think the air really is coming out of the whole Russia investigation. So I'm not sure how much more Sally Yates will drive. It as much as they until they get to Biden, Obama, I, I hear you. But it is amazing how some of the pieces are coming together. And then, of course, you have the other report we're waiting on, the Durham report, which could be uh, very revealing. Some say the Democrats are concerned about that. John, when you fill in for Bill Hammer, what is the key to being successful at three o'clock as opposed to nine to eleven, as opposed to when you fill in for Wallace? How do you how do you have a successful Hammer show? Well, I should I should ask you the same thing. I mean, we, you know, Bill Bill is probably one of the most competent, affable people on the on the planet, and uh, you know, it's a big set of shoes to fill. And I'm, I've known Bill for a long, long time. And Bill has a temperament on air that's uh, that's very engaging. And, you know, I, I in my job at the White House, you know, tend to sort of be a Joe Friday, just the facts uh, person. Uh, but uh, I dig deep and try to see if there's some semblance right. of a personality <laughs> buried deep down inside my soul and see if I can bring some of that out. <laughs> no, I know. And it's a quick-moving show. He's got it really moving. So I think uh, it's it a is, fun show. You know, you know 
I'll tell you something though that that nine to noon show, wow, that thing moves fast too. That, oh, I know. As, 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 you, as you know from doing three hours of TV every day on Fox and Friends, you cannot you know stop thinking for a minute. That's the, that's see what I think you do. must love Which, is that all that knowledge that you have in different areas. You just see that person in front of you and go, yeah, I got about 25 questions for you. I got about 70 for you. You don't even know it's there until you see them. And then you think, oh, you, you, I got this area, whether it's China, whether it's the rescue package. Uh, it must be almost therapeutic to be able to open up like that. Am I right? I mean, it is It is good. Here's, here's, here's the issue. It, it's great to be able to sit and talk with people about a number of different issues, but you're you're always a prisoner of the clock. Yep. And, you know, you've got three, three and a half minutes with somebody. How do you get in the points that you really want to get in? You want to make some news, and then you also want to get into depth, and you want to get into some nuance, but you just you don't have the time to do it. It's amazing that, and I'm sure you experience this, every morning on Fox & Friends, you got three hours of TV and no time to do anything. And guess what I just heard? A wrap. I have to wrap, because I'm a prisoner <laughs> of the clock, too. Uh, John, Point thanks proof. thanks so much. I'll be watching at 3. John Roberts, thank All you. All right, Brian, with you. Uh, we'll kind of come back with your calls. one 408 Busy afternoon. Just kind of talk to the president. That's interesting. With Sally Yates coming up shortly, that'll be fascinating. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first. Only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You can't do a mail-in vote. Now, Florida is different in the sense that they've been doing it, and they've had two very good governors, frankly, and they have an infrastructure that's taken years to build. But Nevada, they start voting very soon, and he just threw it out there. And the other thing is the votes don't have to be counted or tabulated until seven days after November 3rd. Uh, if we're waiting for that state, you don't know what the answer is going to be till after maybe seven days. and But it's not going to be seven days. It's going to be months or years. They will never be able to tabulate their votes because they're not set up for it. I'm not, uh, you know, I know the president's now been praising Florida, and I understand why, because there was a sense from some congressmen that uh, they're getting the wrong message in Florida, that those ballots they're getting are fraudulent, so they should throw them away. Not true. Don't throw them away. But sorry, Mr. President, I've watched Florida wrestle with the elections and the ballots. We all watch Bush Gore, but I've watched other times, and these local precincts are an embarrassment. And I do worry about Palm Beach and others. It really gave the country a run for their money where we got to sit there on our hands saying, what were we thinking? But my worry is about this whole mail-in ballot things that I guess the majority of the country are okay with is that we're not going to be able to count them in time. And with how, who wins on November 3rd, whether it's Bush or Trump, excuse me, Biden or Trump, what if they win on November 3rd, they're celebrating, but there's so many ballots to count, by November 10th, the other person's winning. And then you go, wait a second, I, I, I won. I want to recount. November 17th goes by, another person's winning. I want to recount again. And all I'm telling you is look back in 2016, how close it was in Wisconsin, Minnesota, how, how close it was in Michigan and Pennsylvania. A few thousand votes. If I lost in those states by a few thousand votes, I'd want to recount, especially when it's all mail-in. 
Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com, order the podcast, and go to BrianKilmeade.com, order any of my books. I sign and send. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Uh, Brian Kilmeade here coming to you from uh, New York and heard around the country and around the world for the most part. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A matter of moments, we'll be able to bring you some comments from the Sally Yates hearings in front of the, the Senate Judiciary Committee chaired by Lindsey Graham. They are very prepared to ask her some pointed questions about what the Obama team was up to regarding the incoming Trump team after and before the election. So we're getting closer and closer, perhaps, to answer. Sally Yates uh, played a prominent role in the Justice Department. Suddenly, she had to rush over and recommend to the president that they fire Michael Flynn because of his talks with Russia, which still doesn't make much sense what happened uh, behind the scenes when we may never get to the bottom of it. But it is very intriguing as we get closer and closer to the bottom of it. Uh, meanwhile, the New York City has their health commissioner resign, blasting Mayor de Blasio on the way out. Basically, she is a uh, Oxyris Barbot, and she hardly liked the cops. One of her statements was, um, I don't give two rats asses about your cops. Uh, and their need for masks. That's where she stood out. We talked about that on the show. She resigned. Turns out Mayor de Blasio never talked to her. Why would she talk to a health expert, Mayor de Blasio? He was doing so well as thousands die in New York by the day. While he insisted everybody celebrate Chinese New Year because they were stuck with this Chinese virus and couldn't. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So I'd remind the Republican leader that if this bill is going to pass with all Democrats in the House and a majority of Democrats in the Senate, it's got to be something that Democrats like and support. Coronavirus rescue package promised to be delivered by end of the week. We will give you a preview if that's even possible, along with an update on the vicious virus. Number two. Will the vice president debate Donald Trump this fall? Oh, yes, he will. I think they've already, um, I think it's three debates that they um, decided on. So, yeah, they'll be there. It sounded like Dana Perino was asking the magic eight ball, but it wasn't. It was Jill Biden, who's married Joe Biden. The battle to get Americans to vote in vote to vote in person intensifies as Biden announces a big buy immigration vision and makes a commitment to debate, as you just heard. At least that's what his wife says. Also, Republicans get a break as the right candidate wins the Senate primary in Kansas, enabling them perhaps to keep the seat in the Senate. Number one. Antifa is a horrible group. It's a far left group. And they used to try and blame the right on all this stuff. And now, finally, at least they're not doing that so much anymore. I don't see very much of that at all. Almost never. Antifa is a far left group of radical anarchists. And I agree, Mr. President. Law, order and denial. The Dems cannot get themselves even to admit that Antifa exists, let alone comes up with a way to fight it and defund it. Why is that? Why is that that law and order doesn't even come up with Joe Biden? Because he doesn't ask her any questions. Joe, The president of the United States did 55 minutes on Fox and Friends. Last night he did Lou Dobbs. Uh, a few days prior he did Jonathan Swan, who will be joining us 
at 1034 Eastern Time. Uh, and of course, we'll have Jason Miller in 10 minutes. He is senior advisor to the Trump campaign and was there in 2016. So they can't even admit there's a problem in the cities. They want to blame the federal agents. And normally I'd say score one for the Dems, score one for the Republicans. That's politics. But when it comes to law and order, that's where you pretty much don't need a scorecard. That's when people look around and say, wait a second, that reminds you, that reminds me of me in Minneapolis. I live in the city, too, in, in New York. I know what it's like to be out in Los Angeles, and I see the unrest there. Probably many of you don't listen in the South Chicago, but you've been around in Illinois and Chicago. Can you imagine if it became the Wild West in the Midwest? That's what's happening. And... Because that's what's happening, people are getting outraged by it. Even people in Minneapolis are saying, I am not for defunding the cops. In Albuquerque, not for defunding the cops. In Seattle and Portland, the people that may or may not vote for or Trump are saying, at least he's outraged and trying to do something in the city, not the status quo, because we're not fighting for racial justice. We're fighting because our country is not good enough for the socialists uh, out of work, Unemployable, next-generation Americans. Here is Mazzy Hirono and Senator Ted Cruz. You'll love this because she's from Hawaii and never heard of Antifa. They have Antifa problems there, too. And Senator Ted Cruz called the committee hearing. Listen to these two go at it. Cut three. We should all join hands and and denouncing and uh, (laughs) whatever words you want to use about violent extremism of all stripes. And I think we can all agree on that. So to constantly accuse Democrats of not caring about that is re- really, uh, I, I, I can only say that you, you, you aren't listening. So I hope this is the end of this hearing, Mr. Chairman, and that we don't have to listen to any more of your rhetorical speeches. Thank you very much. I'm leaving. Throughout her remarks, she still did not say a negative word about Antifa, nor has any Democrat here. Uh, They instead engage in a political game where they depend. You're welcome to say something negative about Antifa right now. I think that I've covered the subject quite well. You are not listening. Okay. She declined to speak, so that is the position of the Democratic Party. It's unbelievable. So just to paint the picture, if you haven't seen the video, is uh, she gives a speech where it's stop blaming me for not bringing up Antifa. And Ted Cruz had leaned over and talked to the senator or staffer right next to him. And she looks, she goes, you're not listening. I'm going to leave. So she goes to leave. He goes, no, no, you have a second. Just condemn Antifa. Oh, forget it. You're not listening to me. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe we're paying these people to make our laws and fix our country? Forget it. Here's Ted Cruz talking about what he heard and didn't hear. Cut four. Denying fair protection of law enforcement is a civil rights violation. Those rioters aren't concerned about racial justice. Indeed, they're willing to make a mockery of the peaceful protest to advance their violent objectives. More and more, we're seeing signs that a significant portion of this violence, of this rioting, is is not random. It's not spontaneous. Rather, it is coordinated and inspired by leftists, Anarchist groups, groups like Antifa, we're seeing too many local officials, mayors and governors who've made a cynical decision that it's in their partisan interest to turn a blind eye to this violence. Okay. And then nobody said anything. Dick Durbin said, well, it's right wing extremists. 
Jonathan Turley, one of the best legal guests you could ever have. He's not here anymore, but we're able to steal his sound bites when he's on other channels. Uh, he talked about Antifa. Cut seven. I've been teaching for 30 years. I have never seen the level of fear and intimidation on campuses that we see today. Faculty are afraid to, to speak out about issues. We can't have a dialogue about the important issues occurring today because there's a fear that you might be accused of being reactionary or racist. We've had law professors who've been physically attacked. And for people that think that Antifa and groups like it can be allies, they don't know Antifa. You mean the group that doesn't exist, according to Jerry Nadler, or the right-wing extremist groups that we should really be focusing on? That's Jonathan Turley, a Democrat. He's just being real, and he can't believe we can't have a real discussion. So let's talk 2020 and what's at stake. And we think we know. And again, we're monitoring Senator Lindsey Graham's making opening comments, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairperson. As Sally Yates gets set to appear, she'll have written comments, and then we'll go off script. Every Democrat will say, why are we here? And every Republican would just go to try to find out answers. So uh, the Joe Biden's making a huge buy. He's going to be spending millions of dollars uh, to try to – uh, get his TV campaign going. Joe Biden is also going to get his digital campaign going. And he says what he claims is a record number of uh, dollars spending it. So Joe Biden also put out an immigration plan and he'll reverse, he claims, the policy to push and re- uh, to push out Hispanics. He wants to reach out to Hispanics, but he does not want to reach out to Cubans because he knows that's a lost cause because they went ahead and recognized the country, lifted the embargo and legitimized uh, um, Fidel Castro's brother. Not good. So you got 2.3 million Americans. You got 66 percent of the population in Florida uh, is uh, Hispanic. And there's 2.3 million Hispanic Americans and 26 percent of the Hispanic population are Cubans in Florida. So, Mr. Vice President, if you want to win Florida, you got to try to win over Cuba. You can't really the Cubans. You can't really ignore them. I don't think that's not usually how it works. So we have Joe Biden now will lay out his. Immigration plan. It will say, if you're from Venezuela and a refugee, congratulations, shake my hand. You are a citizen. Unbelievable. And if you are, uh, if you're from, a, if you are DACA, you're going to immediately get citizenship. He's going to prove it, and he's going to make sure of it because they're going to get rid of the filibuster. He plans on getting elected and bringing the Senate with him. So there's a lot uh, at stake when it comes to who's going to win this race. If it comes to voting, the big debate now is absentee ballots as well as access to filling this out at home and mailing it in. So post-it notes to be able to put it in. Now, I have a huge problem with this fundamentally. I think most studies will show there's fraud there. We'll never know if our application was set up in a place in which the vote actually counted. So that's why the president is pushing back so hard. As Mercedes Schlapp says— uh, as she told us earlier, as she told the channel earlier, there's a difference between absentee ballots and mail-in voting. I'm going to bring that question to Jason Miller. Then I'm going to talk to Jonathan Swan about his sit-down with the President of the United States that generated so much news. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, back in a moment. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, Joe's a moderate, and that doesn't mean that his ideas aren't progressive and bold and forward thinking. But he's he's not someone who's left. He's not someone who's right. He's a moderate. And that's who he's always been. Joe has a really strong vision of where he wants to take this country. And he has a strategy and a plan. And whether it's on climate change or education or uh, the economy, um, Joe knows where he's going and what he wants to do. Jill Biden talking about her husband. She was fine. She's great. She was running. She'd have a uh, she'd have a she'd be harder to beat, I think, than her husband. So joining us now to talk about that, Jason Miller, senior advisor of the Trump campaign. So, Jason, being that he's a moderate, you might as well get rid of all those ads that say he's not. Who's telling the <laughs> truth? You or his wife? All we have to do, Brian, is listen to what Joe Biden has actually done and said himself. And yeah. this is one of the, the things about this race that's so fascinating is normally candidates run to the left if you're a Democrat or run to the right in the primary. And then the middle uh, in the general election, you run to the middle. You try to appeal to independents and undecideds uh, and things like this. It's kind of a, one of the old adages in politics. Well, Joe Biden, so he captures the Democratic nomination and then he goes way to the left. He signs on to this Bernie Sanders. He takes this 110 page. I call it a communist manifesto. I think the president calls it a manifesto. But it's this Bernie Sanders document that's now, in effect, the Democratic Party platform. And I mean, this has everything crazy in here from reimagining police to taxpayer-funded gender reassignment surgeries to uh, raising taxes, the Green New Deal, uh, ending cash bail, which is absolutely bonkers. There's a horrific story in the New York Post today uh, about uh, what happens with someone who got out and didn't pay bail and they went and killed several more people. So uh, Joe Biden has signed on to this whole Bernie Sanders platform, but it's not just that. AOC is doing his climate change effort. Uh, I mean, all of the the radical left-wing progressives have taken him over. And Brian, here's my thought on it, because you've got to ask yourself, why would Joe Biden go and take this massive shift to the left? Why would he allow himself to be taken over? And I think it's because no one's excited about Joe Biden. I think he's trying to get them to love him by signing on to their craziness. Also in the New York Post today, the headline is, Joe Biden's got to leave his basement if he wants to win. Does he? At a certain point, he's going to have to. And I think this is one of the things where a lot of the professional prognosticators uh, in the the mainstream media really kind of gloss over this. Uh, The American public's pretty darn smart. They can tell if someone is sincere. They can tell if someone really wants the job. That's, I think, one of the things that everybody's missing right now is that Joe Biden doesn't seem like he wants the job. Uh, You don't lead the nation from your basement being in hiding. I think he's answered something like uh, 36 questions since July 19th and no questions since uh, uh, July 28th from any tough questions, although he did have a little exchange that I see it's popping up on uh, social media where he asked a a reporter if uh, they'd been tested for cocaine, which is really bizarre. So I guess maybe he did get a couple questions yesterday, Uh, but it's uh, you got to show that you want the job, and Biden hasn't done that yet. So the president's going to war about these mail-in ballots now, but he said, Florida, I feel differently. Does he know what's happened in Florida? Florida's been a mess, starting with Gore, Biden. Remember in 2018, they couldn't even count the votes in Palm Beach County? So uh, I know there's a mixed message. Some seniors get a concern that they're throwing out their ballots because they were told it's fraudulent, but Florida's not a great example, is it? 
On the absentee side, Florida has been very good. Uh, we've had traditionally Republicans have also done very good with the absentees. Uh, it's been one of the, the things that really helped Republicans continue to win the state. Here is, and, and I fully realize the, the risk of the possible mixed messaging or people are wondering what's going on. Why is the president so uh, focused on this universal vote by mail is what I call it. And that's, again, that's where they're blasting it out and sending these ballots to, to everybody, even if they've moved. Some of these people are dead. A lot of questions. But let's take Nevada. So this literally happened in the dead of the night, Friday night. I think it was like 4 a.m. East Coast time, where the assembly in Nevada, Democratic-controlled assembly, passed this thing called AB4, Assembly Bill 4. And it was just signed into law by the governor then yesterday. So they rammed it through over the weekend. Here's what it does. It moves Nevada to an all-universal vote-by-mail, but they're also keeping a lot of the polling stations open, which we've seen in other examples of this, always leads to double votes. On top of that, they legalize ballot harvesting. And so anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's, it's barely a step, uh, a step above uh, organ harvesting, but it's where they go around and have paid political operatives go and collect ballots. That's kind of like giving someone your winning lottery ticket and say, hey, can you please go in? Can I trust you to get it in? And if you're someone who's doing ballot harvesting, you're paid by how many of these you collect. So the, the incentive for fraud and uh, neglect here uh, really becomes an issue. Not only that, Brian, here are the two big kickers. Number one, you can turn in your ballot with a postmark up to a week after the election. But here is the craziest thing ever. This is why the president's going so hardcore after this. You can turn in a ballot in Nevada three days, up to three days after election day with no postmark. So they're basically, this is like the old Tip Tip O'Neill days in Congress where they hold the vote open until they get enough votes uh, to go and win it. And so this could effectively take Nevada off the map unless we're successful in the courts. You think you still have a shot there. Uh, I see in Ohio, even on the CBS battleground states, you're you're up a point, uh, closing the gap in some other battleground states. What do you plan on doing, being that you can't get the president and surrogates on the ground to do rallies? How are you trying to to gain on Biden in these key states? Yeah, so a number of things. First and foremost, I think there's a, a clear recognition by the president that uh, his day job, uh, the fact that he is the president of the United States is first and foremost. And so continuing to lead on COVID, uh, the news that uh, popped up actually from the uh, your interview this morning, we were talking about uh, plasma. Uh, this is a, a massive development, good news study out showing that we can help treat people. Uh, news this morning out at HHS as we talk about uh, um, pushing towards a vaccine. Uh, this is something that I think that's rapidly being developed as part of this Operation Warp Speed. So as the president continues to do his job, we are going to start doing a lot more contrasting speeches, policy announcements, laying out that second-term vision between President Trump and Joe Biden, and showing this the contrast. And really, if people are going into Election Day, if people are either undecided, maybe they're slight lean Biden, or they're trying to figure out where they're going to be, uh, and someone thinks, do I want to go and vote for someone who's going to raise my taxes by $4 trillion, or do gotcha. I want to go for someone who's actually cut taxes? Hey, it's such a key difference. Jason, you know the music. You know the business. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Jonathan Swan next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I've gone to your rallies. I've talked to your people. They love you. 
They listen to every word you say. They hang on your every word. They don't listen to me or the media or Fauci. They think we're fake news. They want to get their advice from you. And so when they hear you say everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks, I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, well, Mr. President. What's of control? Yeah. Under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. And that was some of the exchange that created so much news. Jonathan Swan with uh, Axios. Also, his show airs on HBO, which was, I guess, Jonathan, you interv- did the interview last week. Yeah, it was um, the interview was taped last Tuesday. So it's still, I mean, it's incredible. It's so relevant. I'd be so concerned if I did it last week with the velocity of news, the way it changes. Did you, I mean, the response Dude, has been overwhelming. I lost sleep. Tell me about it. Uh, I was not happy about having to wait, uh, what was it, four or five nights. Uh, you never want to do that, as you know well, uh, especially in this environment. There was a bit of news that was uh, very perishable uh, that we ran sort of the day after the um the interview, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely not the ideal situation to be sitting on a bunch of news for several days. But it worked out. What what, are you, what is your take on the feedback that you've gotten around the country and from your boss? Um, I think it's a bit of a raw shot check. You know, you know. Um, I think the, the thing I I hope people took away from it when they watched it uh, is that it was a fair-minded interview that was tough but was not full of gotcha questions or me trying to score points, but actually trying to press him on what I think are areas where, you know, as the leader of this country during the worst public health crisis in a century, he, you know, he needs to be pressed. Um, uh, I, I have to confess my, my wife is enjoying uh, giving me a lot of uh, grief about all the memes going around about my facial expressions. I didn't realise how uh, expressive a face I have. Uh, I'm sure if they did one of the president's facial expressions, it would be just as good as mine. It was funny, uh, but I could tell. But you know what? You were in the moment. It wasn't like next question, next question. You were you were listening, which it may sound like a simple thing, but it's easy to think about your next question when you're talking to the president and not listening to how he's answering this question. Yeah, you know that, Brian, as well as anyone. It's it's, it's that one of the biggest challenges to interviewing. You know, I I, I remember watching um, Ted Koppel, who I thought was a really fantastic interviewer uh, on Nightline, and he never used to. He didn't let his um, team write him a script because he believed, you know, he would have a first question, and then he was so determined to listen so intently that he didn't want to actually have pre-written questions because he wanted to see where the interview went and be open to following the interviewee where they take you. And with President Trump, look, he's one of the most challenging. You know this. I mean, you've interviewed him many, many times. He goes off in so many different directions. It's, it's, it's like riding a Bronco, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're there for the ride and you, you try and steer him back to, you know, to the topic, but it can veer off in all sorts of directions. My view is it's a more interesting interview if you don't resist that you resisted a little bit by steering back to focus on the topic, but you allow it to flow off in, in different directions and you listen intently and you follow um, you follow his line of thinking through to its conclusion. So when you uh, said to him, hey, we're losing a thousand people a day, but and then he said, I'm doing the best. We're doing the best we can. This is a tough. T- so in other words, you I love your first question. 
because he used to go to uh, a church, if you can call it that, of Norman Vincent Peale, Power of uh, Positive Thinking. Yeah. And that's yep. what the president does. And it's easy to walk around life and say, wow, we're in a pandemic and things are bad. Or you can look around and say, we're getting better and New York is doing better. So it's trying to see the glass half right. full. So you establish right. that. But you don't. Do you believe that the president was hoping to uh, whitewash that things are still tough in this country? Or is he just trying to inspire America to look ahead? Look, I, I, I believe his motivation. I, I'm not going to question. I, I don't know the way he's thinking about this. I can only judge him on his public statements. What I think is a legitimate critique of him is that consistently since March, since the pandemic really took off in this country, he has told the public that it's under control, it's dying or or it's fading out. And I think sometimes what he underestimates is how many Americans get there. And this is what I said to him. I said, there are millions of Americans out there who listen to you, who take their public health advice from you. They don't take it from me. They don't take it from the media. They don't take it from Dr. Fauci. They think that we're all fake news. And so when he tells them, when he gives them assurances that it's it's not as bad as the media is telling you, that can actually have an effect of making people feel more confident about, you know, socializing, mingling, reopening, going out about their daily lives without a mask. And that's a real question that I think as a leader um, that he uh, that it's fair to to ask him to grapple with. That's what I was trying to achieve with that line of questioning. And what about when he took out his graphs? Did you have any well, idea what so, graphs were coming? And, no, and what's no, no. Out? I had no idea. Yeah. Like, that was me. I was genuinely, um, that was, uh, so he brings out these graphs, which, you know, as you can imagine, Brian, in the middle of an interview with the president, you're trying to, you know, <laughs> keep it together. And it's like being thrown a curveball, you know, he pulls out these sheets. I don't know what's on these sheets. And, we were sort of at that point talking past each other. He was talking about a different metric, which was deaths as a proportion of cases in this country, which is, look, I don't think it's the most relevant uh, statistic. I think it's much more relevant to, if you're going to compare America to other countries around the world, to look at death as a proportion of population to see how this virus has affected America worse than many other advanced countries. But it's not an irrelevant statistic because it does show if if you've got a large number of cases and proportionately a relatively small number of deaths. It shows the sophistication and, in many cases, the uh, excellence of the American hospital system and treatments and and all the hard work that first responders and doctors have done. So it's not to say it's an irrelevant statistic, but it's not what I was talking about. So we had this sort of bizarre moment where (laughs) I was trying to figure out what's on this graph. (laughs) And he was like throwing new pieces of paper at me. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, let's relive that moment. Cut 40. Death is going up now. now, It's a thousand a day. If you look at death... Yeah, it's going up again. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death... Yeah. Started to go up again. Well, right here... The United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? than what is that? Europe. In Take what? In what? Take a look. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. So, and he was caught uh, by surprise with that, and you were caught by surprise with what he showed you. Yes. No, that's definitely um, fair, a fair assessment of what happened there. 
So a, a couple of things. One, number one, personally, I really like to leave troops in Afghanistan because I believe that keeping Russia and China and Iran at bay and having intelligence on the ground is important. And I know the president wants to pull everybody out. But you said to him, hey, you, got, you still got 5,000 troops. So that's what you started with. He didn't love that. No. So, so I, I started because I've been told by some sources of mine in the administration that he's very frustrated with the reality that he came into office with, I believe there was 8,800. You never know the exact figure because they're not completely transparent about it for obvious reasons. But there was around 8,800 American troops in Afghanistan when President Trump took office. And then against his instincts, following the advice of his generals, he increased that number to about 14,000. And now he's pulled it back down to about 8,500. So the fact that he's you know, four months out from an election, a re-election in which, you know, the first time around he said he was going to pull out of Afghanistan and he still has roughly the same number of troops that Obama had. It, that is something that he's very frustrated by. So he told me, I mean, he, he, he and it was, this was news to me. He said very soon he's going to reduce that number to about 4,000. And I said, what does very soon mean? He said he wouldn't tell me, but, you know, I, I took it to mean a matter of weeks, certainly before the election. You know, I thought he might say, I said, how many troops, U.S. troops will be in, a, in Afghanistan on Election Day? I thought at that moment he might actually say zero um, because I think that's where his instincts have been. But he didn't. He said probably between four and 5,000. Um, so that's actually not that many fewer than when he took over from Obama. Yeah, that's true. Jonathan Swan with us looking back at that really impactful uh, Axios on HBO interview that he did, which is also written up. So we talked to him an hour ago, a couple hours ago. One area in which I'm not sure you talked about was Congressman. Oh, you did talk about Congressman John Lewis's funeral. The president holds grudges. We saw it with John McCain. Congressman John Lewis called him illegitimate and didn't show up for his inauguration. And when he died, the president kept his didn't say much. Just going to put out a very polite tweet. Uh, but he let it be clear that he was not thrilled with John Lewis, doesn't really know much about him. Here's I brought up what President Obama eulogized him and turned into a campaign speech. Here's what President Trump said about President Obama's John Lewis speech, uh, eulogy, cut 42. I thought it was a terrible speech. It was an angry speech. It showed this anger there that people don't see. He lost control. And he's been really uh, hit very hard by both sides for that speech. That speech was ridiculous. Uh, I think the answer is they both are just in a state. They, you know, it's just one of those things. We've redone 82 percent or something of the Obama things, whether you look at the environment. And our air is our air and water now is cleaner than it's ever been. And my takeaway from this, Jonathan, is I think President Obama is taking the loss in 2016 worse than Hillary Clinton. And he's determined to get Whoa, that White House that's back. That's a big call. That's a big call. I think I think I think he certainly is very very determined to get the White House back. And you know, you might even be right because here's the thing: I think Hillary Clinton took the loss. You know, obviously very very hard. She wrote a book about it. She's um, said that the president's illegitimate and etc. But if you think about it, Donald Trump has undone almost the entire Obama legacy. Not the whole, there's still bits of it remaining, but there's not much. And if you think about it, a lot of what Obama did was through executive action. So it was actually fairly easy for President Trump to, um, to undo it. And if you look at his major diplomatic accomplishments of what he saw as his 
greatest achievements like the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Trump has, has obliterated all of them. And Obamacare, which was obviously his signature legislative accomplishment, look, I guess it stands today, but, I mean, barely. It, it, Trump has gutted that, that piece of legislation. So, um, yeah, he wants to get back and restore. This is a matter of what he built for eight years and trying to ensure, you know, if Donald Trump is in power for another four years, I, I think it's without question that the remaining elements of the Obama era will be swept aside. So when you left at the end, he said to you at the very end, uh, it's an honor. He sat back. What was your sense now and then about what he, how he thought your interview went? I think President Trump um, enjoyed it, actually. Uh, I think he enjoys a tough back and forth, enjoys being challenged. Um, I think he enjoyed his interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News, uh, which was a very tough interview. Um, the one thing he said to me after was, don't edit it too much. Well, run it in full. And I agreed with him. I wanted it that to happen. And so we, I mean, very little editing in that interview that you saw run. I mean, we edited out some repetition and duplication and redundancy, but it ran almost full length. And um, I'm, I know that there are members of his team who don't like the interview. I've had a bit of that feedback, but I haven't got any sense that he personally um, has any problem with the interview. And I, I, famous last words, maybe he's going to tweak something about me, you know, nasty about me in, in an hour or two, but I, I wouldn't put much stock in that if that happens. I think um, he's used to dealing with the media. He's dealt with the media in all stripes for, you know, 40 years. This is not someone who, you know, can't take a punch, put it that way. I thought you were extremely fair, and I, I know when, you know, sometimes people ask tough questions, but it's with venom. You were curious. You wanted the answers. You weren't looking to get famous off the interview, and that's what I walked away with, but yet you are. You're getting a great notoriety because I thought you were fair and tough, So, um, and, I, and I think he enjoys that because he knows you're prepared, and he knows you. I think you, he would say he's being fair, although when he gets some negative feedback and people say, don't sit down right. with him again, you didn't do good, that's right. when he gets frustrated. Right. But, uh, so. Jonathan, you brought up something interesting. Will Joe Biden sit down with Jonathan Swan? I sure hope so. Um, we're putting the request in, and, um, and I really hope he does. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's very important that when you run for public office in this country that you submit yourself to tough but fair questioning, and, um, and I hope he does. I really, really hope he does. Will you be as tough? Of course. There's no question. Great. Jonathan, thanks no so much. I, I thought you did great. And I know I knew you would. Uh, but uh, the fairness in what you did, you let him finish. But yet you still said, listen, we heard that already. We got to get some more on this. Um, I think he enjoyed it. And one thing I think people are going to miss if he doesn't, if he's in four years or three months, they're going to miss the access and the opening. He sits down with people. He take questions on the way to the chopper. He'll take questions on the uh, on the way to Florida. You know, so. I, I think people are going to miss that. I don't think we're going to get that again. You know, I, I, I hope you're wrong, um, but I suspect you're right. Jonathan Swan, thanks so much.
Thank you. Axios is Jonathan Swan. Back with your calls in just a moment. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Now we're going to do something extremely fun. We're going to play a wonderful game called Who is my daddy and what does he do? Yes? Is your daddy a fireman? He's probably big. Is he a wrestler? Is he a basketball coach? No, 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 no. What's the matter? I have a headache. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. Yes. I need to go to the bathroom. Okay. Boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. (laughs) Thanks for the tip. (laughs) You had to play it all the way out. Kindergarten Cop, and here's why. Uh, Guess what? Kindergarten Cop is now so-called canceled in Oregon. It's like what happened with Gone with the Wind. The NW Film Center canceled August 6th outdoor screening of the 1990 movie, which was fantastic, starring Schwarzenegger, after it was excoriated on Twitter for glorifying the traumatization of children by police and compared it to Birth of a Nation in Gone with the Wind. Is this unbelievable? Kindergarten Cop is banned? We can't live in a country where you can't watch Kindergarten Cop. There's nothing safe anymore. Nothing sacred. I mean, can you believe this? And by the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, go ahead, Allison. Oh, no, I was going to say, she also says it's because it romanticizes over-policing in the U.S. It romanticizes? You mean makes it fun? Over-policing. My goodness. Exactly. By the way, doesn't he get the bad guy and the girl? And he saves all the kids. And saves the children. I love those types of endings. It never happens anymore. Fight for kindergarten cops. Stand for something. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, set uh, an election about three months in the middle of a summer like none, none I could ever remember. You can't find a gym, can't stand in a bar, got to find some food. I don't know any state that's the same state as usual in all 50 or any country that's the same. We're actually banned from traveling. So people are getting fire pits and barbecuing and getting to know each other's names. You don't need name tags to identify your family anymore. Just another note, I'm dying to get these gyms open. They've done more than anybody else to get uh, to get their business up and running, and they're all dying on the vine. Big chains are going belly up like 24-hour fitness. And I've been following what's happening in New Jersey with this Antilles gym. Now these owners who have battled the state to open up, people who have worked out there, not one positive test, and you've seen them all over television. Now they ripped, they were boarded up, so they ripped the boards off, kicked their own doors in, and opened up again. And now New Jersey is fining them, going to jail them for contempt, and is going to fine them $1,000 a day. Really. While in New York, dozens of liquor licenses have been taken down because it didn't meet the standard of Governor Cuomo. 
You do not. This These restaurants are all suffering. They're trying to comply in almost every case. And all you're doing is punitive action against people who just want to make a living. While you let these protests rage in the street and no one's been arrested for destroying 5th and 6th Avenue in downtown Manhattan or your downtown, wherever you are across the country. This hour, we're going to be joined by Chris Tarwell, political editor, bring us inside 2020. As we know that Sally Yates is testifying right now on Capitol Hill in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Arthur Lee, well, his invention could save your life or your child's life. It's called LifeVac. We're going to tell you about that. It's already uh, helped and saved the lives of dozens of people, not only in this country, but around the world. You're not going to believe it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So I'd remind the Republican leader that if this bill is going to pass with all Democrats in the House and a majority of Democrats in the Senate, it's got to be something that Democrats like and support. Yeah, coronavirus rescue package promised to be delivered by the end of the week. We will give you a preview if that's possible, along with an update on the vicious virus. Number two. Will the vice president debate Donald Trump this fall? Oh, yes, he will. I think they've already, um, I think it's three debates that they um, decided on. So, yeah, he'll be I there. Think it's two. Oh, it sounds exciting. Uh, we'll see what happens. 2020, the battle to get Americans to vote in person intensifies as Joe Biden announces a big buy immigration vision and makes a commitment to debate. At least that's what his wife says he's done. Also, Republicans get a break as the right candidate wins the Senate primary in Kansas, enabling them perhaps to keep that Senate seat and the Senate. Number one. Antifa is a horrible group. It's a far left group. And they used to try and blame the right on all this stuff. And now, finally, at least they're not doing that so much anymore. I don't see very much of that at all. Almost never. Antifa is a far left group of radical anarchists. I hate to tell you, Mr. President, but... Dick Durbin did yesterday, blame far-right and white supremacists. Uh, but we're talking law, order, and denial. Dems cannot get themselves to even admit that Antifa exists, let alone come up with a way to fight it and to fund it. Why is that? And keep in mind, I spoke to the President of the United States, uh, along with uh, Pete Hegseth filling in for Steve Ducey and Ainsley Earhart on Fox & Friends, and we have some of those highlights. But I was stunned what happened on Tuesday. Senator Ted Cruz said, let's look at Antifa. We're not talking about racial unrest. And George Floyd, because Antifa took over these riots. They're organized. They drop off bats. They drop off bricks. They drop off frozen water. They dropped off sticks and they beat cops. They hit them with these uh, these foreign objects. They try to take down fences. They got equipment. They have coordination. They got earpieces and radio calls. They're organized. And you cannot get a Democrat to admit it. And the president of the United States brought it up. We used to talk about race. Now we just talk about people who hate the country. And I'm not kidding. Antifa hates the country. And these people were there before President Trump got there. So if you're a Democrat, news alert, you can actually take on Antifa and not be uh, for the president. No one will blame you for that. You want an example of Antifa's presence? I'm not going to give you Ted Cruz. I'm not going to give you Dick Durbin. I'll give you one of the fairest people in the country, Jonathan Turley on Capitol Hill. He teaches at George Washington, a legal scholar. Cut seven. I've been teaching for 30 years. I have never seen the level of fear and intimidation on campuses that we see today. Faculty are afraid to, to speak out about issues. We can't have a dialogue about the important issues occurring today 
because there's a fear that you might be accused of being reactionary or racist. We've had law professors who've been physically attacked. And for people that think that Antifa and groups like it can be allies, they don't know Antifa. These people, they're, they're jobless, unemployable people who will just want to create chaos and hurt innocent people. But if you ask Dick Durbin on Capitol Hill yesterday, Dick Durbin says, oh, the problem is not left, it's right. Cut six. Instead of focusing on the real and significant violent threat of domestic terrorism motivated by white supremacy and far right-wing extremism, terrorists who have killed Americans, the Trump administration has repeatedly tried to vilify protesters and conflate social justice movements with anti-government extremism. Yeah. So you can imagine the frustration. President of the United States also is looking at what's happening in our major cities, Portland, Seattle, uh, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Austin, Texas, and sees a trend. Now, in terms of uh, unrest, at least he's doing something in Chicago. President Obama never did anything. At least he's trying to do something uh, in New York. They said they got it. So far, there's been nothing but inconvenient of late, but it could erupt in any moment. You know, yesterday, for the first time, I, I, I took a car instead of the train, and I'm going through 36th Street. Just know it's on the way to the Midtown Tunnel, one of the exits to get to Long Island. And I cannot believe the damage done to these buildings, and no one's fixing them because they're all out of business. This is the, this is the city that was attracting more tourists than I think any city in the world, and now we have no tourists, and there's nowhere for them to go. How did this happen in a matter of weeks? There's somebody working to undermine and keep down our country outside the pandemic. That's what I believe. Cut one. Antifa is a horrible group. It's a far left group. And they used to try and blame the right on all this stuff. And now, finally, at least they're not doing that so much anymore. I don't see very much of that at all. Almost never. Antifa is a far left group of radical anarchists and agitators is a nice word, but they're really anarchists. Who finances the them? Democrats know, the Democrats know they exist. You have Democrats funding them. They say Soros and they say other people. Who knows? But they're funded. You see them standing there with uh, weapons that are expensive, that, uh, that, that, that with signs that were made. I mean, literally, they have signs. Some of their little marches, they have signs that were made in a high class printing shop. I like the signs that are made in a basement. They mean a lot more. But that Antifa is very well known by the Democrats. And when they say, gee, we don't know who they are, who could they be? Uh, They are a bad group. Yeah, there he is. Uh, They are. So the president of the United States, I believe in the next set of polls is going to show he's closing the gap. And that's going to create some panic because Joe Biden can't win it. He just has to not lose it. And what he does is stay away. Stay away. It's called the old before there was a shot clock. There was a four corners offense that was mastered by North Carolina. So they'd sit there and pass the ball around. They get a lead, pass the ball around. And what they call is take the air out of the ball in basketball. And it was so boring. They changed it to a shot clock. So you got to shoot to give the other team a chance to get back in the game. He's trying to hold the ball in the four corners offense. And Trump is doing every interview possible. Uh, Tough interviews with with, uh, Wallace and uh, down and dirty with Jonathan Swan. For 55 minutes, he spoke to us last night. Uh, Lou Dobbs, Sean Hannity last week. He's saying, come on out. We got to do this. And he might be forcing Joe Biden out if the polls will reveal the internals more than the public polls that he is closing the gap. The president's making a a few announcements, but so is Joe Biden. Biden's making a major purchase in terms of uh, overall ad time. 
uh, he is. Uh, he's going to. Well, he's got this big uh, ec- uh, this big immigration plan, which I'll tell you about. But in terms of uh, ad buys, he's going to be spending millions of dollars uh, buying on streaming as well as uh, campaign ads. Uh, they say it's the biggest ever. Uh, he is going to be buying his meter strategy uh, will include will happen really kick into gear after he names a running mate. He's going to spend two hundred and twenty million in the fall for TV advertising and sixty million for the fall for digital persuasion advertising and do that campaign. Now for Trump, he has been knocking on doors and he's been registering. Do you know the Republicans registered by a wide margin? more than Democrats so far for this cycle. And to me, that's pretty impressive because it's just pure work in a very tough environment. You knock on doors in the middle of a pandemic, you want to win. Uh, that's true. Ronna McDaniel said that. Cut 20. This has been an initiative of the RNC and the Trump campaign. This is why we've had staff on the ground so early, because we knew we needed to increase our voter registration numbers. We're starting to see these numbers where we're outpacing the Democrats. This makes a huge difference heading into an election day. We have 1,500 staff on the ground. And I'll tell you what. Biden doesn't. And we're seeing this across the country. He has key states where he hasn't even put in a state director. And I think this is part of the reason why states like Nevada just called an emergency session to change their election law because they knew we Mm. were out organizing them in their state. And so it's really unfortunate to see them uh, in the middle of the night change the rules of the game in the fourth quarter with the players on the field. And that is it. And in Nevada, they're being sued because of that. You can't just mail ballots to everybody. It confuses people. A lot of them don't have any idea that there's even a mail-in program. They didn't request it. What's the ballot doing here? I know it. We got one a month ago for to vote on our uh, to vote for our, our education council, for the school superintendents, and for and for the panel. And we. Didn't know anything about it. I've never done that before. We just got a date. But in the pandemic, everything's different. So that's the problem. Just think about this. What's this country going to be like? I don't care who you're voting for. If Joe Biden wins on Election Day and they count the ballots and Donald Trump the next week wins on Election Day, he ends up taking Minnesota, ends up taking Michigan, ends up taking Pennsylvania. Do you think that Joe Biden's going to stop cheering, high-fiving, put the balloons back in the rafters and say, "Okay, Donald Trump, you win and vice versa? Okay, no problem. There's no way that's the case. So Sally Yates is testifying on Capitol Hill in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, at which time she's asked about her role and her um, shock at finding out that President Obama knew all about the Russia investigation, that the FBI director, James Comey, was going past her, going right to the president. And for Sally Yates, that was problematic. Listen to her. When, When you heard about the interview, you got upset, didn't you? I was upset that Director Comey didn't coordinate that with us and acted unilaterally. Yes, I was. Okay. Did Comey go rogue? You could use that term, yes. Yeah. Uh, Comey, uh, you could say he's self-important. They're actually doing a movie on his book. And which is unbelievable to me. Out of all the books written about this time, they choose John uh, James Comey to go around. Even people like the Hillary Clinton camp doesn't like him. Trump despises him. Sally Yates has just said he's gone rogue. I guess President Obama kind of liked him. Perhaps. I'm not sure. So we'll see what else emerges from this. They want to find out what went on. It was Joe Biden truly the one as described by the FBI. I think it was uh, Peter Strzok was the first one to bring up the Logan Act violation by Michael Flynn, which is farcical. Cheryl, listen on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Cheryl. 
Hey, all I keep hearing is, you know, how many deaths we're having in America. And what they're not taking into consideration is the population size. America's actually at number nine. We're behind Belgium, the United Kingdom, Spain, Italy, Sweden, and France. We're behind them in deaths per million. They actually have more than us. I'll take your word for it, but just we, we just want to get a hold of it, and I'm not sure any national policy or any president can do it. We're trying to figure this out, and we still have not gotten into the labs, and we still cannot tell you exactly how this, uh, how this whole thing emerged. So uh, the, what they want to do is blame Trump. Okay. They want to blame uh, President Bush because it happened on his watch, the Wall Street collapse on the mortgage scandal in 2008. Okay. Uh, we'll see, because the Trump is going to say nobody else could have done better, and here's what I did right. one 408 I'll come back, take your calls in just a moment. We're monitoring the events right now with Sally Yates, also continuing to track what's happening in, uh, happening in Washington and around the country as we try to get a hold of this coronavirus, which has affected so much as we effort to get the kids back in school. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. one 408 Hey, let's go out to Lake Havishaw, Arizona. Fred, how are you? Oh, I'm just fine. It's Lake Havasu, but it's a great place, and uh, we're doing just fine out here. Uh, I wanted to mention the, um, uh, the statistic Mr. Swan was talking about. What is the relevant one is called the um, mortality rate, and that's a, that's a function of two things. The denominator is the total number of cases, positive cases, divided by... At that, uh, and the numerator in the fraction is the total number of deaths. And that gives you what is known as the mortality rate. Well, uh, how, in Arizona, they are bending the curve. Do you get that sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're doing much better. Um, is it all behavior? It, uh, yeah, we're, do, we're, we're like here in our city. We're all wearing the mask when we go out and... Um, you know, there are some grumblings, but everybody's you know, pulling them in the same way on this. So we're doing pretty good. All right. Thanks so much, Fred. Sean, Fox App uh, in North Carolina. Hey, Sean. How you doing today? So uh, I'm a long-time listener, watch you on news all the time, um, big Fox fan follower. But uh, what, what bothers me is, is all the negativity that the publicity just throws at us every day of every waking moment. There's no positiveness. There's no, okay, things are starting to look better. It's, I hate Trump, don't care. I hear you. This is why this is going on, and it's, and, it's, and it's disgusting. I get it. I'm not a big Trump fan, but there's nobody else out there. 
so you got to go with what you do, what you, what's best for for overall people. But the rhetoric that they use and the negativity that they throw with what's going on in America today, you think they would want to take a little bit of a more positive spin on things. Like let's report on some good things that are happening because of this. Let's report on the people that aren't dying because now doctors are coming up with new ways to treat this virus, and we're coming up with a possible vaccine which is a whole nother thing, vaccine. Who wants to take that vaccine? I'm debatable whether I want it if it comes out or not. I do my due diligence. I wash my hands. I wear my mask. I stay away from mass groups of people. Hey, Sean, I, I'm going to give you some good news. I did ask the president today about this, the plasma, and that Steve Gottlieb was one of the people that came up and said, Scott Gottlieb was one of the people that came up and said, listen, this might be the therapeutic. Those people that, that beat the virus have to go give up their plasma, and that might be something those who are hospitalized can get right away. And that could be it. And we did talk about that, and the president say he's he's got the same reports, and they're true. So we're going to need some selfless people to go back in and give up plasma. I think that a lot of people would, uh, and just get the test and go. And make it simple. Brian Kilmeade, Joe, back with Chris Dyerwell. Just a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. You can't do a mail-in vote. Now, Florida is different in the sense that they've been doing it, and they've had two very good governors, frankly, and they have an infrastructure that's taken years to build. But Nevada, they start voting very soon, and he just threw it out there. And the other thing is the votes don't have to be counted or tabulated until seven days after November 3rd. Uh, If we're waiting for that state, you don't know what the answer is going to be till after maybe seven days. and But it's not going to be seven days. It's going to be months or years. They will never be able to tabulate their votes because they're not set up for it. Uh, Chris Darwell joins us now. And I'm real worried about uh, mail-in votes, but I told the president, if, you're not going to be, if we're not going to have mail-in votes and people are concerned about underlying conditions or their age, and they're not going to vote, they, they need another option. So what are you going to do? Chris Tywell joins us, political editor for Fox News. He's got his Fox News halftime report, uh, which we hope everybody signs up for. Hey, Chris. If there's one thing Florida is famous for, it's great election management. <laughs> ah. Just, it's really it's Florida's hallmark, really. People are like, what about Florida? You're like, Disney, Citrus, awesome elections. Right. That's how, that's how people think of Florida. Um, <laughs> you know, the president is, is in a pickle on this just because they're trying to make like they, they tried for a while to say, well, absentee ballots are good, but mail in ballots are bad. Well, are absentee ballots mail in? Yes, but not that kind. What we mean are good mail in kind. It gets confusing because in a lot of these states. So basically, here's how it goes. You've got a handful of states now, including Nevada, apparently, that are going to mail everybody a ballot. That's five states that always do that that have done that, not always, but have done that before the pandemic. California joined in, and I believe Vermont and D.C. did that, too. Now Nevada will do that. So that's what nine states are going to do that. Now, a lot of states are going to mail people applications automatically. They're going to mail out all these applications for an absentee ballot, which you then have to send in. And then in a lot and then in the, the, the plurality of states, it's going to be no excuse, except for New York, Texas, 
and a handful, just a very small handful of other states where you need an excuse beyond coronavirus to vote uh, absentee. Um, for most, for the plurality of Americans, the experience will be, send, you're going to just have to ask for it and you can do it. And that's vote that Republicans need to bank. If Donald Trump wants to win in for, for the largest number of Americans, they are going to have to be competitive on mail-in voting. And by, and we, we're starting to see that we, we're starting to see the pivot, what he said to you, which is, oh yeah, we're going to need these mail-in votes. So we can't discourage people from mail-in voting. I don't know that you can do it state by state. I think you have to just, if you're the leader of your party and you're an incumbent seeking re-election, you just have to tell all of your voters, vote any way you can, get in early, please, please, please get on this. So, Chris, a couple of things. Uh, I, I don't know if it's just because of my local election, but most people I talk to, they got ballots, not applications, ballots mailed to their house. I find that problematic. I, so, uh, so... You live in New Long York, Island. right? Yeah, uh, that's not that. That's not the law in New York, uh, as I understand it. First time maybe ever. There's, maybe there's something for a local election or something, but the law in New York is, is election law. Uh, like most of the political process in New York, is awful uh, and complicated and hard to do, and is the longstanding result of machine politics and just a disaster, un, unbefitting the Empire State. Uh, But the only, so it's Hawaii, Alaska, oh no, it's Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, uh, Utah, and maybe it is Alaska, do all, yeah, they just do all mail. So those are states that you get, you get a ballot in the mail if you're a registered voter. And to the president's point, those states have experience in doing that. Right. That's how they do it. And they have to have and they have good track records. Right. They have they have successfully executed elections in this way. So mailing out ballots is neither good nor bad. Just like every other way to administer an election, it has to be done well. And I think it's quite risky of Nevada to, in the middle of a pandemic, radically alter the way that they conduct elections. It's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to there's a, there's a there's a better alternative, which is to make the change that a lot of other states made, which is we're going to send you an application for a ballot. And if you want to send that back in, then we can start the absentee ballot process. Hey, I want you to hear. So this is my big worry. Uh, not getting a winner uh, and inaccuracy. Fundamentally, uh, I think that I and one thing I said to the to the president, and I think you agree with me, if you don't like mail in ballots, you have to acknowledge the coronavirus is going to be there. Acknowledge people with underlying conditions want to vote. Acknowledge that seniors want to vote. And you got to open up more polling places. you got to have clean teams. you got to provide directions and information for people to get to the ballot box. You can't just say business as usual, put up with it. Because, by the way, most Republicans would suffer more because technically they seem to be getting most of the senior vote. So there's got to be a plan B if you don't like plan A. Um, You know, Republicans labor under the misperception that they do worse the more turnout there is. So there's been a long and there's a look, there's some historical support for this. But in the last 40 years, there really isn't Uh, more participation is not good for either party. 
But Republicans still have sort of in their DNA this belief that lower turnout is good for them because Republicans, and it's true, in the days when Republican voters were much more affluent than Democratic voters and when Republican, back in the days when there was, where the class divide between the parties was more pronounced, uh, there was something to be said for higher propensity Republican voters. But I don't think that's the way that it is anymore. There's a lot of academic evidence to back it up. So if you are, and you see this on the state level, and you even see it from the National Republican Party, and though they have to keep it a little quiet because of the way Trump's approaching this, they've got to get people engaged. There's real concern among Republicans at the state level that the president talking down voting, talking down absentee voting, and say, well, you have to go vote in person. Well, I don't want to go vote in person because that's risky. And also, by the way, it's going to be a disaster in a lot of places. It's going to be, we saw in Detroit, they had a primary yesterday. Well, the poll workers didn't show up because they said they didn't want to be there because they weren't satisfied with how clean things were and all that stuff. The, this is, we have an election coming up in three months, and we're not ready, and it doesn't have enough money in it, and it doesn't have enough. This, this should be, in a, in a country that, talk about befitting a great nation, uh, in, in a nation this good, it should be a bipartisan proposition that voting should be, mm-hmm. should be free, fair, safe, and when I say safe, I mean your ballot safe, but you're safe too. All right. Lastly, I want I want you to hear this. Is Nate Silver, five thirty eight. I want to think, see what you think about his analysis on mail in voting, uh, because they didn't seem to like it on the very show he was on. They ignored it. Listen. Consider what happened in the Arizona Senate race in twenty eighteen at midnight on election night. Republican Martha McSally led by about a percentage point, but Democrat Kirsten Sinema eventually won by two and a half points once late arriving mail ballots were counted. That's a pretty big swing. The second issue could be problems at voting locations, like the long lines we saw in states like Georgia and Kentucky during their primaries, which could reflect some combination of social distancing, plus fewer poll workers, plus voters not receiving their absentee ballots in time. All of that could lead to poll hours being extended and the possibility of litigation over absentee ballots. Look, nobody wants a replay of Bush versus Gore, but when you have an election in the middle of a global pandemic with a second wave, in fact, possible in the fall, Anything can happen. So we could have a day where Joe Biden wins on November 3rd, but loses on November 11th. It would more, it would more likely be the other way around. Uh, it would be more likely that, uh, that Trump would say, I've got a lead in these states. And then we will explain on television, well, you have a lead on these states. But because remember, in 2018, 60, and this was no pandemic, 60% of the votes were cast by mail. Uh, that number will be higher. And it's going to end, of course, because it's a quadrennial election, the volume will be much bigger. The only way we're going to have a decisive election night is if Joe Biden stomps Donald Trump, right? It's we're, That's the only way you have a decisive election is if Biden wins Florida and Pennsylvania early state by such a wide margin that Trump can't catch up in the, in the, by mid. But the, the more likely scenario is that you'll see Trump closer ahead and then a lead eroded Right. Because Republicans yep. tend to we'll see how it goes, tend to do better on Election Day than they do by mail in voting. So you could see if I, I, I'll put it this way. My expectation right now is that Election Night will not be conclusive. <laughs> well, well, if you look at the polls, uh, Trump lost by uh, loses every state by a thousand points. So he's not even he's not going <laughs> to get one vote. Simpler. It, yeah. would, it would make it simpler. Yeah. If the polls hold. It would definitely be simpler, but not as interesting. And not as much fun for us nerds. 
Remember, the thing that, that, that we want to do, we have the Fox News voter analysis, which is the industry gold standard now. We can do more. We can find out more. So we want a, a real race to play with here, right? That's the, that, that's the interesting thing we want to see. I want to do what's best for America. Chris Dyerwald, thanks so much. Oh, it's overrated. And I think the ambulance is coming. <laughs> 911 worked. He called in the middle of a segment. Hey, Appreciate take me it. away. All right. Hey, when we come back, I'm going to introduce you to the inventor of a device that could save your life, but more importantly, a child in your family. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Arthur Lee joins us now, founder and CEO of Lifeback. So oftentimes we're talking about the news. We're talking about uh, death, destruction, and we're talking about it on a grand scale. But now it's time to talk about something that could change your life today, especially if you're a young mom or dad. Uh, and you fear that your uh, your child could be choking. Especially, you could help seniors as well. It's called LifeVac. The inventor is a good friend of mine, Arthur Lee. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of LifeVac. He invented it. Arthur, welcome. What's up, Brian? Hey, a New York's own Arthur Lee on Long Island. Arthur, tell everyone if we were, if we haven't seen it yet, describe LifeVac, what you invented. Well, basically, it's a. It's a sink plunger. It's a tiny plunger and uh, engineered a valve system so when you push it down, the air doesn't push the object in. Uh, ball valve locks. You pull it up. It creates suction uh, using a face mask, and it removes the object that's stuck in your throat. When did you invent it? Yeah, you know, and me, it's so funny. The It was me and my little girl, me and Jackie, in the garage nine years ago um, when I heard about a child her age that choked to death. Uh, you know, I'm her father. I have to protect her. And I found out how common it is, one child every five days. And I, I just couldn't imagine her dying in my arms. You know, I, I wanted to just buy something, but nothing existed. So I did it. So you invented it. You got the patent? I did. Uh, it takes a long time. Uh, but we did. And uh, it's out there saving lives. So uh, what kind of results have you had so far? Well, you know, it, it took a long time to, you know, perfect it and test it and get medical journals and uh, backing from uh, medical professionals and firefighters. But we've saved 68 lives now and 25 children. And I was uh, honored to actually meet three of the children. And it's the most incredible experience uh, you can imagine. Yeah, I see for you, you did an interview. I saw a lifeback story on Channel 11, local uh, station here on uh, about this little girl that was saved. I'm also reading about Amriana Robinson, 11 months old. She was choking, picked up a wrapper. They couldn't get it out of her mouth. Uh, they couldn't do everything they tried. All of a sudden, she realized the mom that she had uh, this this life back. Her other daughter called 911, but they did, weren't going to get there fast enough. She grabs it off the wall. You just put it on. You push and you pull. And what happened? Popped it out. You know, the amazing thing about that story was, you know, over the years, we've been pulling different things, you know, hard candies, coins. That was a jagged piece of plastic. And, I, you know, I did my best, but you never know, right? And when the EMT there, the paramedic, saw the piece of plastic, he said, thank God you had that thing. That would have never come out. And what people don't realize is that in home, like, you know, in your regular day-to-day life, it's 50-50, the uh, Heimlich's going to work goes up to 70% if you train, which is why we always advocate being trained. But uh, those odds are not good enough for me as a parent, especially when it's the fourth leading cause of accidental death overall. Uh, more people die from choking than fires. 
And, uh, you know, that story kind of was a, a, a wonderful moment of, uh, you know, confirmation that it'll always work. Knock on wood so far. How many countries? Um, we've saved lives in, I believe, like five or six. Uh, we're in numerous countries all over the world. Uh, just last week, we had another save of a child in Spain. Um, you know, Brian, I mean, you know, like playing sports, you get that rush. When we get a child saved, it's like ten times that, you know? It's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's everybody's fear. Your life could be great. You could be the perfect parent. You change your, you turn your back one moment. You have multiple kids, and then all of a sudden, you see your child choking. What are you going to do? Also, for seniors, when they start getting older, they could be choking. And and I always think too about if you have ALS, or if you have Parkinson's, you start losing control of your esophagus, and you could be sitting there wondering, how do I help? This would do it. Costs about sixty-five dollars. You hopefully never use it. But if you're going to spend for a fire extinguisher, to me, you got to go for this. And also, I think your story is fantastic. You didn't have any background in this. You just had a motivation, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm blessed. My dad was an engineer. My sister's a doctor, and I've always been a builder. You know, and you know the amazing thing that people don't realize is. You know, the information we can get now, the the plus side of all this information, I was able to research, you know, choking incident studies done in the 70s, the 60s, and I was able to really scientifically approach it. Um, And I I came to realize what the problem, you know, the Heimlich, the body is a random generator of force. Sometimes it's zero, sometimes it's not. But the light back always generates 300 millimeters of mercury, which is about the hardest your body can cause. So it's kind of very simple, you know, and I wanted something, you know, one of my criteria had to be super simple, easy to use. Killian, the little boy who was saved, just like you mentioned, turned the head for a second, jammed a handful of carrots in his mouth. Parent never used it, never touched it. Said grandpa's a jerk. Well, I don't need this thing. Grabbed it panic pushed it pulled it saved his little life and he's adorable <laughs> yeah i remember uh, when i was younger one of my i always everyone used to have sour balls and we could never have in our family and they say wow well your older cousin almost choked to death they got it out the very last second it already turned blue and that this would be something that if that was in the house would have used that's why when you came on fox and friends you had a boom and people were very thankful uh if people worried especially now that everyone's in their own house people are eating at home more and more if i was in a school if i was in if if i was a principal of a school i'd make sure i had it if I was in a classroom, I'd make sure I had it. And if certainly if I'm in my house, I'd make sure I had it. And it's just a win-win. Hopefully, you'll never have to use it. one eight seven seven life Or you could just go to LifeVac.net, and you could see and hear about all these stories. You also have the videos up there of the moms talking about how this happened. And, uh, Arthur, so how many, have, how many saves so far have you got? 68 uh, all in. And I think we're at 27 children have been saved by LifeVac. Fire department's using it? I think we're at uh, hundreds, um, 500 plus schools, uh, fire departments, all police departments, Nassau County police have it uh, all over the world. All right. And, and you know, um, they're out there too. Yeah, we'll keep up to, as the number gets up, we're going to keep up with it because you're going to be uh, hopefully with the show for a while and we'll be able to keep up and have this uh, positive story. And also your appearance on Fox and Friends was a, was a big hit. Well, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to getting that mail that says, you know what, I saved my child because I heard about it from Brian's show. And for me and you, that's going to be a moment where we're just going to bowl. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.